Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello, hello, hello. Hello to pandemic britain and beyond we've got an absolute corker of a show today if you don't mind me saying with some pretty superb excellent guests uh here so thank you so much for joining us i know you have better things to do probably gonna go down the pub weren't you um what i'm gonna do i'm gonna just just set the scene first do a bit of housekeeping and bring them in it's gonna be a really really important discussion um it's been nine months or so since keir starmer was elected leader of the labor party after what i think we can all agree was a very very traumatizing electoral defeat uh, and for those on the left of the party who believed in a transformative political project to transform society, uh, you know, we dealt with that terrible electoral catast- catastrophe. Uh, and then during the leadership election, uh, the, I suppose, the continuity left candidate uh, lost. The pandemic ravaged this country. We haven't had a lot of time to process or really discuss what's going on in the Labour Party. We can't meet, of course, in constituency Labour parties, we can't have political meetings and rallies and discussions. And often these chats happen in the pretty febrile confines of social media, where maybe when we're all a bit stressed and have had maybe one or two to drink, myself included, we don't always have the most level-headed and thoughtful discussions. So I thought, why not have a really thoughtful uh, discussion about whether or not Starmer's Labour Party is failing to oppose the Tories? There are a lot of people on the left who are very angry with the Labour leadership. There were others who think, come on, actually, a lot of this is being overstated. But what we're going to talk about is what is, you know, the vision of Starmerism? Is there one? Have they, has it, has he kept to his commitments, his promises, his pledges? Because if Starmer was elected in any platform, I'd sum up as this. Keep the, the core radical policy prospectus of Corbynism, competence, um, he's less likely to be mauled by the media, uh, party unity, and uh, being able to take the things Labour Party members believe in into, into office. That's why so many people who voted for Corbyn twice voted for him, uh, and that's why he a- was able to win the leadership. Has he stuck to that? Where's he going? Where's the leadership going wrong? Where's it getting things right? We're going to talk about this. It's going to be entirely factually based, I promise you. Just before I bring them in, just some housekeeping. Uh, for those who are supporting us on Patreon and making this channel possible, um, we're ramping up what we're doing. Thank you so much. Uh, for those who don't, you can just go to patreon.com slash owenjones84. Just three quid a month or whatever. Hugely appreciated. And that pays for uh, media workers on union wages. Uh, I hope many of you saw the COVID catastrophe documentary we did. And that just shows the hard effort and skill and graft uh, that your that money is being spent on. Please welcome the two esteemed panellists who will be discussing this tonight. Come on in, come on in. It's, of course, Michael Walker from Navarra and the award-winning journalist, uh, Paul Mason. Big round of applause across the world for both of you. Thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure. It's great. 
So come on, let's just. I'm gonna. I'm just gonna set the scene with policies, and then I'll, I'll bring it in. So one of the reasons, as I've said, Keir was elected. Keir Starmer. Sorry, I hate it when people start talking about politicians. Sir Keir, no. It's, all right. Well, uh, I'm one of the support. As I said, was his commitment to maintaining the core domestic policies of the Corbyn era. Let's have a look at Keir Starmer from January 2020. The fundamental shift in our policy from 2015 to 2017 and then to 2019 to a more radical politics was the right fundamental shift. Big issues like being a party of anti-austerity, being a party that wants to invest in our public services and in manufacturing. Really important shifts and I'm very concerned that as we move forward we don't either trash the last Labour government or trash the last four years. Now they were formalised in the so-called 10 pledges which remain on his website if anyone wants to see they are real. Now they included hiking income tax on the top 5%, reversing corporation tax cuts, scrapping universal credit, getting rid of tuition fees, no more legal wars, common ownership, as well as defending migrants' rights, strengthening workers' and trade union rights, scrapping the House of Lords and devolving power. Now, as he kept in them, so, for example, on universal credit, we're going to put that in the yes column. Let's have a look at what he said on Ma recently. Do you still want to scrap universal credit? Yes, universal right, credit okay. needs to be um, scrapped and, and a new scheme put in place. In the immediate future... Uh, what I'm very determined to do is to persuade okay, okay. the government to stop the cut to universal credit that's due to come in in April. Sure. That is going to affect millions of families, that cut to universal credit. Sure. It's unfair and the government shouldn't be doing it. Um, on tuition fees, I have been assured that that remains a cast iron guarantee. Common ownership, a mm, bit dodgy that common ownership term because it can mean all sorts of things. Co-ops, we don't know. People should have been more clear. Though on the broadband issue, actually during the uh, We Own It got the uh, candidates to sign up to example to the policy on publicly owned universal full fiber broadband across the country migrants rights that has been abandoned that goes with labor support for the brexit deal on tax last october he told the huffington post that tax rises for the top five percent the main policy he might even be bolder he says more recently though the shadow chancellor annalise dodds tweeted those who say hiking tax in the middle of a pandemic will choke off recovery then list Labour amongst OECD, IMF, uh, ECB, IFS. Now, some might say, ah, well, that's during a crisis. We'll talk about that. Meanwhile, James Meadway, the former aide to John McDonnell, writes in support of Dodd's economic strategy, suggests it's comparable to that of Labour in 2017, before, I suppose, he would argue, went off the rails in 2019. On unions, just before I bring you both in, Labour's, a lot of people who don't know the Labour Party pre-Starmer, uh, sorry, pre-Corbyn, don't know that actually Labour's uh, uh, pass when it comes to backing trade unions is very, very, very poor. In fact, almost non-existent. They didn't back the minor strike. They condemned the general strike of 1926. They don't back strikes. But Keir Starmer, interestingly, did support British gas workers who came on the show, people might have seen them, who were on strike with the GMB. Let's see a little bit of his video. You so easily could have felt powerless faced with this challenge. But you've stood up stayed united and built your power as a collective. Support from the public on social media has been powerful. And let me say it again, British gas workers and all those facing fire and rehire have my full solidarity and support. That's good, more of that. However, he did not back the National Education Union in their demands to close schools. We'll talk about that later. So some of Starmer's senior aides are objectively divided between those who see the 10 pledges as liabilities and those who see them as red lines 
that can't be crossed. What is the truth? What's going to happen? Let's start with you, Paul. You backed, obviously, Keir during the leadership election. Does he have a coherent political vision, a political... What is Starmerism? Is there a clear political project? And are they going to stick to those 10 pledges? Well, I think... Um, I can remember being with uh, Keir Starmer uh, right at the start of his campaign, where some of the key people around him were saying, come on then, you know, quizzing him, tell us what do you stand for, you as a person? And he said... If I see something wrong, I can't cross the road. I have to do something about it. So as a kind of um, wizened old Marxist, I kind of, how do I categorise that? That is um, radical, uh, social democratic, uh, Rawlsian, uh, to put it, to give it its correct term, uh, moral philosophy. It's, it's, it's a form of liberalism. Um, it's, 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 it's a left-wing liberalism. And for me, you talk about the 10 pledges, the three most important ones are the three top ones. And it's not the detail, it's the slogans, climate justice, social justice, economic justice. And those were fleshed out very, uh, not so much in policy detail, but as in terms of political philosophy detail. Are we going to prioritise as Biden is, as Macron is, um, you know, but not enough? Um, climate above everything else does climate take is it up there because for a lot of social democrats say the german social democrats they're quite happy to open coal mines and the answer was yes i think that's that is what describes Keir's politics to me social justice i believe social justice is a, is a very powerful concept for the modern left because it communicates into a sections of the working class that don't see the workplace prior primarily as where they're exploited and where they're struggling and economic justice. Uh, so, so, so those things are for me what form Starmerism. I mean, I'm not a Starmerite. I'm a I'm a left wing radical social democrat, but I supported him because I thought that we needed to run the party in a non factional way. Now, one of the things I would judge Keir's, uh, Keir Starmer's uh, success and, and failure by is whether or not he's doing that. I'm not sure he's succeeding. I think a lot of the problems that we're going to discuss arise from the fact that there isn't a Starmer faction, there isn't a Starmer mass base. What there are are the old, the, the left, which I'm part of, and the sort of Blairite and Brownite right. And we have very different visions of what we want out of a Labour government. And there are, the, the, at its worst, what Keir Starmer's leadership is doing is basically channeling those forces into into battles with each other, which I think is pointless. I would rather us try and try and create a common project, even though it means both sides giving up some of the things that they are pretty obsessed about. I mean, Paul, before I bring Michael in, I mean, in terms of, you know, I mean, I'm going to name a couple of people. Uh, Jenny Chapman, who's the former Darlington MP, is in charge of Keir Starmer's political operation. She's very firmly on the right, uh, by all accounts, um, and Matt Pound, of course, is the former national organiser of Labour First, the old right, you know, basically, uh, just basically doing the trots. And the trots is a term which the Labour right use very expansively. Let's just put it that way. They're very ice picky, I think it's fair to say. They run the political operation. I mean, is that the problem, partly, that actually there is a right wing faction at the top and there isn't a coherent Starmer faction, so they fill in the vacuum? Well, 
we, we've got inside Kia's team, for example, Simon Fletcher. We've got Annalisa Midgley. We've got people who work associated with Corbyn. I, I'm not on the team. I don't have any share of voice, but I do say things quite loudly to them, sometimes very loudly. And I, I feel that, that I am listened to. Um, but look, I don't think that's I don't think that's the problem. I think what what people on the left are rightly frustrated by, uh, but I want to tell them to bear with it, is that the way that yes, I think um, certainly Jen, Jenny Chapman, uh, certainly some of the people you haven't mentioned, you know, uh, some some of the people who are sort of backroom people, they have a very stagist view of what Labour needs to do. And, and I'm, I'm very keen to hear from Michael, so I don't want to hog the, the mic, but I will just say in the three stages what it is. It's re-established credibility because the polls tell us that nobody was listening to us because they didn't think the party was credible or serious about power. And then to establish a narrative which pulls towards us some of the people we've lost, the red red wall, green voters in in um, in, in um, uh, you know Brighton, etc., people in Scotland, uh, on both sides of the, the nationalism debate. So it goes credibility, narrative, policy. I'm frustrated with that because I think you want policy at the heart of all three stages, but that is what they are doing. And if you understand that is what they're doing, that's why they keep resisting committing to policies. And as for Jenny Chapman, I think, you know, she lost her seat in Sedgefield. Um, Darlington. I'm sorry, Darlington. When I know that at the start of the COVID epidemic, when we were all got, we were all going, look, the Tories are screwing up completely. Um, we here's our chance. You know, we can demonstrate competence. She, she said to me and, and others on the streets of where I come from, they're going. They're not bothered about Boris. They're pointing the finger at Labour and saying you're politicising this. You know, you're Marxist. All of this. In other words, I think Jenny, for all the fact that I would disagree quite profoundly with her on on Labour's past is is trying to reflect the problem that if we, the left, keep saying, got to ring back the red wall, well, there's a voice from the red wall. There are others like John Trickett and Ian Lavery. They say different things. But she has a voice from the red wall that says, as far as I'm concerned, here's the problem uh, about what you guys are saying. So I'm always prepared to have discussions, with, as long as they're civil, with people who disagree with us. And I, I just wish that... We could get that left, that huge left, vibrant grassroots that we've got engaged with this project of winning the next election rather than the kind of Starmer out meme. You know, that's probably been the left's most successful thing, Starmer out meme. Um, what good did that do? Well, people love a hashtag on the left. Let's not begrudge them that. Mike, before we bring you, I mean, just thanks everyone for the super chats, which I'll read out and the stickers, and we'll, we'll thank you all at the end as well. If you're watching on Facebook, as I said, please do click in and subscribe. Michael, I mean, someone's just said, Nick Gussett says, why shouldn't I rip up my party membership? What do you think about the, the po about the policies? Do you think those 10 pledges were sincerely meant? Or do you think it was a bit like... The, some of the teams thought, well, we'll just tell the membership that and the media won't bother checking with us afterwards because they don't they don't support this lefty stuff either. What do you, I mean, what do you think? Do you think, you know, and how much do you think has the left really tried to put them under pressure to build support for those policies given it is the mandate of the, of the leadership? 
well, I suppose a couple of things. I think it is too early to say, has he adopted the 10 pledges in, in practice? I, I think the argument that you don't need to put forward a, a coherent set of policies right now, especially because we're in a pandemic, and this is, I know we're going to talk about this sort of independently. My bigger critique when it comes to policies and, and the Labour Party is the fact that they haven't put forward consistently the problems with the Conservative um, pandemic response. I, I think they've, they're, they're adopting this stagist uh, approach, which Paul Mason is talking about, sort of let's reestablish um, credibility, then go for narrative, then go for policy. And what that ignores is that we're in the middle of a pandemic, 100,000 people have died. And one of the reasons government policy is so bad is because no one is presenting any alternatives. So I think there's an enormous responsibility there that's been really abdicated, which is to try and minimise the damage done by this pandemic. But to go back to the, the pledges, um, I never really believed them. And the reason I never really believed them when I first read them is because one of the pledges was full voting rights for EU nationals, defend free movement as we leave the EU. And when I, that was never going to be, whoever won the leadership, that was never going to be in Labour's 2024 manifesto. And we have seen, you know, Keir Starmer is not defending free movement as we leave the European Union. And I'm not particularly angry about him for it. I mean, I think that debate was lost um, in the EU referendum and then sort of ultimately in the 2019 general election. But what that suggests to me is that he doesn't really take his promises to the Labour membership very seriously, because I think he was quite flippant in what he put in those 10 pledges. I don't think it doesn't strike me that there was a real conversation going on within his team as to let's only commit to things we can keep, because that wouldn't have made the cut. So the impression I get from Keir Starmer, and I, I have to say, I, I'm a bit worried that Paul Mason is reading a little bit too much into him saying, if I see something bad happening, I don't. I, I don't cross the road. You know, <laughs> I don't know if I get from that radical social democracy and rules and, and all of these things, because, I mean, that's just something, you know, Theresa May could have said that. And and, and this is not to say that that I think Keir Starmer is, well, I, in, in other ways I do, in terms of the, the kicking out of, of Jeremy Corbyn, I think that was appalling. There are many things I think he's done which are appalling. But when it comes to these policies, I'm not really shouting from the rooftops, oh, why hasn't he talked about carbon emissions more? Why hasn't he talked about public ownership more? Because none of those are particularly relevant in the discussion. Now, I think he should have had a better pandemic response, but then also um, done much more to suggest that he actually cares about the people who are committed to the Labour Party. I, I think he's been actually appalling at keeping Labour's sort of internal coalition together, um, principally because he, he, he kicked out Jeremy Corbyn. But also you, you've heard stuff, and this was especially after EHRC came out, which I understand is a very difficult situation for the Labour leader to sort of contend with. But he said, in, in that leadership election, we're not going to trash the past five years. And I heard lots of front bench, you know, shadow cabinet members standing up and they say, well, why did you serve with this guy? And they're like, oh, well, there's only two parties. And I had to, you know, I, I really didn't want, you know, really sort of saying it was this whole party, the whole past four years were a moral disgrace. We only sat there because we felt that there was no alternative, but now we're going to wash our hands of it. And when Labour members hear that, they feel like you're you know, that's so disrespectful, right? You can obviously admit there were failures, admit there were errors over the past four years, but to just try and close the door on that. And if, if by reestablishing credibility, what he does is basically says, I'm nothing to do with all of those people, which are the hardworking left-wing activists of the Labour Party. I'm nothing to do with all of those people. And, and more than that, I actually think they're scum. I think they're really bad people. If that's your means of establishing credibility, which seems to have been what happened over the past nine months, it's going to be very difficult in this stagist approach, which which Paul is talking about, which I, I think is a reasonable analysis to rebuild that coalition. If you've told half of them, you know, they're racist, they should have no role in mainstream politics and that thousands of them should be suspended. 
But on that, I mean, I mean, Peter O'Donovan here says we'll still be able to win because of the pandemic. And just so people are clear, watching the structure, we'll talk about policies. Then we'll go on the pandemic. We'll talk about the so-called culture war, and we'll talk about the polling, and then we'll have a conclusion. But Michael, one of the thought I'll bring Paul back in on that. One of the things that worries me, and I'll just put this to you, is that a lot of people on the left have this sense of resignation when it comes to policies, in the sense of, well, Keir Starmer self-evidently is not going to stick to these policies. They've abandoned them. And the problem with that is there's no attempt to build grassroots pressure from below to say, well, actually, no, these, this is your mandate. These are the policies that are clear red lines, and we will build a broad campaign, including the soft left, to put pressure on the leadership. Instead, it just seems a bit like, well, self-evidently, they've abandoned the policies. Therefore, we, don't, we, we shouldn't waste our time trying to build pressure on them. Well, as I said, I mean, I don't think they're all good policies. I, I don't think Labour should go into the 2024 manifesto saying defend free movement as we leave the EU and full voting rights for EU nationals. I, I, I don't think that's a particularly coherent policy for them to go into the election in 2024. Obviously, I, the, you know, the vast majority of them I'd, I'd like them to keep. I'm not opposed to those, by the way. I just think they'd be mad for the Labour Party to go into a general election with them. But... I mean, for me, uh, that's going to be a debate we have in a little while. Obviously, yeah, he shouldn't be saying things which outright contradict them. But the fact that he's not talking about them, I think, is perfectly understandable. I think in the middle of a pandemic, if you're talking about nationalising water, you're going to sound a bit ridiculous. Um, so, so for me, it's 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 less about those those pledges. And as I say, I mean, people are using the pledges as is this is what he's committed to. I don't really trust. I don't trust the guy. You know, and this is not to say Starmer out. Obviously, he is going to be the candidate at the next general election. And he's going to be the most left-wing option we have for prime minister. <laughs> so, so I don't think there's any point in hashtag Starmer out. But I think holding him to those pledges at this point, it, it just to me seems a bit, I, I don't see where that's going. I, I think you actually have to be much more reactive to what's going on in the here and now. So as we'll get on to the pandemic, but I think the pressure that should have been put on him were really about the, the events which were coming up this year. Not really saying, can you, can you, keep, to your, can you keep to your pledges? So I'm aware that my Wi-Fi reception is terrible because Labour didn't win the election and weren't able to introduce full fibre broadband. So while I'm going to sort that out whilst Paul, I'm going to put myself on 5G, but I'm going to ask Paul, isn't this isn't a problem for Keir Starmer and his team that actually one of the things that I think is cutting through and there's a danger of it cutting through is this guy doesn't really stand for much. And I've heard Labour MPs who aren't on the left worry about that. And so... The problem when when the Tories they clearly they they're focus grouping this to, to death. When they're going in on opportunism and Captain Hindsight, they think that cuts through because they don't think they don't think that Keir Starmer is coming through as a man of principle and a man of vision. And therefore, by definition, if you don't have a vision, then you can be easily portrayed as opportunistic. So if he abandons those policies, isn't it completely? You know, it's it's it. It's completely self-destructive because it will cut through that this is not a guy who sticks to his words or really believes in very much. I think um, the pre, you know, the pre and post-COVID world um, are so different. See, I want him to stick to both the policies and the spirit behind them, and the strategy actually, which I share. Um, but um, the pre and post-COVID world is so different that the idea that somebody's got to go, you change something because you. Because you know the the economy collapsed by ten ten percent and a hundred thousand people died, you know the businesses I speak to, you know uh, every day are ripping up their entire strategies. The idea that Labour's not allowed to change a couple of policies, I don't think will will be a problem. And let's come back to this thing. The reason why I talk about the way what drives it, people say, well, what drives it? I think it is a, a, 
a moral commitment to socialism. It's a very different kind of socialism and probably of morality than, than what we had from Jeremy. But I do think it's genuine. Um, and I think it will stand at the test of time and grow. Uh, sorry, my dog's being a bit disruptive here. Behind me. She's to dig the, the sofa, but um, all right. But you know, going back to what to what Michael said, I think that um, that what we've got to do to win an election now, uh, which we re I think this is the lesson of uh, December twenty nineteen. Uh, we we really have to build a bigger coalition than we thought we needed. Um, we the, the all the, the, the British electoral studies stuff really tells us that there are a group of working class people who have left wing views on economics, but authoritarian views on social, social issues. So they're anti-immigration. They are pro the police. They are, um, you know, not usually feminist. Um, no. If you look at the analysis of the British Electoral Survey, the, the stick-out point, the, the thing that just absolutely hits you in the face, that Labour lost dramatically between 2017 and 2019, those people. Left-wing people who don't buy wokeness. I hate the word wokeness. I am a woke person. No, we, we those of us who are you know, trying to bring the lessons of 100 years of Labour movement history, kind of know that we need to construct, a, a, to use Gramsci's term, a hegemonic offer to them, something that attracts their attention and says, across this values divide, we can have a joint project of doing the following together. Can't we please? So where I come from, you know, where you come from, Owen, as well, that is in Lee in Lancashire, where I come from, we'll, it's been Labour for nearly 100 years. It went from liberalism to Labourism in 1921, and in a flash, it went to a Tory majority. And I don't think it will ever come back unless we can construct an offer to that elderly, and not only elderly, the low-skilled, isolated, marooned, you know, young people who live there that is different than the one that we went in 2019. So I, I'm open to suggestions of what it might be, but I think that one based on values common values uh, that we can share between these different sections of the working class um, and not on a hugely detailed uh, kind of sort of, you know, Leo died recently, Leo Panitch, you know, democratic socialism, not necessarily on a hugely detailed Panitch Miliband type uh, democratic socialism assist offer. Uh, what I want is a left government and to get it, I will make the social alliances needed to get it. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Is anybody still there? Have you all got on five? <laughs> I'm still in the background. I think we're still missing Owen. Well, why don't but we I can... Michael, why don't you switch to... Yeah, you? I'll, I'll res- Over to you, Michael. I mean, I'll respond because, I mean, the one, I suppose the one elephant in the room there was was the second referendum, right? So you've said that all of these, what the, what the British election study showed is that you've got these people who are economically left-wing but socially conservative and they abandoned Labour between 2017 and 2019. Now, you could make an argument that, um, you know, in in the earlier years of, of Corbyn's leadership, there was sort of a, a conscious effort to sort of um, avoid culture wars. And then by 2019, you'd had all of these conference motions, which weren't necessarily, you know, fought out in terms of how are we going to sell this to the electorate, defend and extend um, free movement, abolish SATs, you know, all, all of these things that seemed much more radical than 2017. Potentially, we learned the, lo- the wrong lessons from 2017. But when it comes to social authoritarians they're brexit voters right so so we had a policy which was to overturn the vote they had cast in 2016 and so i think there's a danger and i'm not someone who really wants to really get the past this is not to say um you know Keir Starmer's terrible because he led this policy um it's to say that i think if we overthink the, the these cultural divides we can get a little bit carried away I think without the Brexit question, what Biden has shown actually is that you can kind of, I know we're going to get onto this as well, is, I mean, his approach was kind of common sense. You know, it's, uh, I think the divides in this country are probably less tense than they seem, um, other than on issues like Brexit. And if, yeah, I I think if you had the Labour membership sort of construct whatever manifesto commitments, whatever, you know, manifesto they'd like, it would probably have a lot of things which would, you know, really get on the nerves of of people in certain parts of England for cultural reasons. Um, But I also think it's very easy to construct a manifesto which doesn't offend the Labour Party membership and doesn't particularly offend um, people in in Lee and Darlington. So uh, for me, I think it's, it's, it's more going to be about an inclusive message, which also has a big economic offer. Um, but you have to stand for something. And, and that's what we haven't seen yet. We haven't seen him stand for anything. And I think we're going to get onto the pandemic, which is where I'm actually a bit more um, annoyed at Keir Starmer, let's say. So I'm back now. We're going to talk about the pandemic. Sorry about that. No, Michael Walker, Navarra staged a coup d'etat against my show. Fascinating stuff. It would, but, uh, all, all I can say is that would never happen on my show, Owen. Well, you're obviously, you have a entirely always functioning Wi-Fi system, but this is a great example of, but I've now shifted onto a special Wi-Fi mechanism. I've, I've, I've found out a way around it. Okay, pandemic. So for the first half of the leadership, I would say it's fair to say that Keir Starmer adopted a position of backing the government, that the logic was don't attack the pilot while the plane is crashing. That didn't just cause disquiet amongst the left. Uh, here's a tweet by Alistair Campbell as an example. He said he wasn't just be, you know, beyond rage at the government, but not far beyond rage at Labour's inability to take them apart and force change on it. They are the opposition, not commentators, saying how shit things are. Plenty of us can do that outside. I mean, this was back in August. But after the publication of the Sage Minutes in September, that's when Sage called for a circuit break on the 21st of September, Starmer called for a circuit break or lockdown in October. Let's have a look. I also want to say this directly to the Prime Minister. You know that the scientific evidence backs this approach. You know that the restrictions you introduce won't be enough. You know that a circuit break is needed now 
to get this virus under control. Now, that was that position was vindicated because, of course, a few weeks later, uh, the country was in, had a national lockdown, which was more severe for the whole of November. And of course, we are now stuck in that vicious cycle because of the government's failure to suppress the virus um, and allow it to run rampant. Now, but at the same time, Starmer's Labour Party refused to back the National Education Union, their demands on school closure until the very last minute this month, when it was obvious that the government were going to do it. Now, what was so baffling about it is the leadership would not concede. They refused to back that position and were clearly dragged there reluctantly because the government were going to do it and they looked so absurd. Well, I mean, Paul, what do you think overall about Labour's position on the pandemic? But more specifically, I mean, that example, it was just bizarre. And it looked to some that the only logical reason they could be arguing this, given the evidence and the experts, was because they didn't want to look like they were in the pockets of the unions. Is that unfair? I think inadvertently, Keir Starmer stumbled early in his uh, lead in his in his leadership uh, on the problem that Blairism was focused around, which is what Blairism used to call producers v consumers. I think this is the great weakness of social democracy that unless you can have a have a, a theory of exploitation and and working class self liberation, whenever there's a big problem, uh, the in, the different interests of producers and consumers are com- clash. Um, you know, so so what MPs were saying is, you know, for every one teacher who is calling for the schools to be closed. There are up to 30 working class people saying, hold on a minute, um, when the schools close, you teach your kids at home. Uh, I don't know how to teach my kids and I'm supposed to go to work. Now, that is what I think was driving the leadership's hostility. I think they were over hostile and wrong uh, on this. I think they misjudged it, especially the second time, although, although I, you know, it's worth saying they did it the first time as well. The, uh, when it, I think it'll come back as well because... There'll be calls to reopen the schools um, and the Tory right will push hard for schools to reopen quickly. Uh, you know, it's for all, all pupils, not just uh, key worker pupils. Um, I think it's about it is, there is a problem of balancing the interests of different sections of the working class. Fine. The NEU wants something. Uh, all the 18 year olds in my extended family who are doing their A-levels don't necessarily want that same thing. They don't want to be sitting at home on Zoom uh, trying to revise for A-levels. They don't even know whether they're going to be taking. So, look, I can see I can see where he was coming from, but I think they took the wrong uh, decision. The only thing I'd say about their pandemic response is that we have to think ahead of, I mean, it's now obvious there's going to be, a, the vaccine is being done, you know, not massively competently, but it's being done. Uh, we'll get to the middle of this year and, Again, the culture war will break out because people my age and above, I'm believe it or not, 60, will all have been vaccinated. And they'll be saying, fine, let's get it, you know, let's get everything back to normal. Um, and workers, people of you know, younger workers will be under a lot of pressure to go to unsafe workplaces. That again is is a, a point where you get to different sections of the labor electorate or the working class wanting different priorities. And I hope that that you know we'll be able to say because epidemiology says this. You just got to follow the science. Be very careful about but, reopening anything. But be, Paul, very, be very proactive in closing schools. I think 
we should just listen to the to 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 the you know, I, I would just listen to indie sage indie sage is full of left-wing progressive pure science uh orientated people just listen to them but this is why i'm so confused about schools because actually the polling actually showed a very very large majority of people supported the closure of the schools consistently yeah. the polling shows that the public expect firmer action than the government uh, uh, ever able to uh, willing to 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 impose and the polling still shows that people don't think measures are, are tough enough so the public wanted the schools closed the experts wanted the schools closed it seemed to me it wasn't really a you know worker versus producer thing there was actually a consensus not least because we know that even though there's a a not a risk necessarily to the health of the vast majority of young people except those with underlying health conditions we know that 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 schools provide uh, or, or fuel infections in the community that's why i didn't understand it it was such an, an obvious win-win to say yeah close the schools there was public opinion science yeah. teachers what do you think michael i mean i i think that was completely bizarre um, and also it completely undermined, you know, Keir Starmer, I still am not really sure understands the pandemic, understands the dynamic of it. Does he have a consistent critique of the government's response to the pandemic? He has one of Boris Johnson. He says he's incompetent and slow. But what does he think about their pandemic response that he would change and that he would do differently? I mean, from a political perspective, his one critique of Boris Johnson was that you do things slow. And his decision, or he, he basically didn't back closing schools until after Boris Johnson had already indicated that he was going to U-turn, right? So what position is Keir Starmer in to say that you, you're too slow, that you're incompetent, that you ignored the science? Because Keir Starmer did exactly the same thing at that point in time. And I mean, I completely accept Paul's sort of conceptual framework there, which is that, you know, you often see on Twitter people saying it's the Labour Party, so it should back every position that any trade union takes. Now, it's the Labour Party which have close connections with trade unions. It should be particularly, um, you know, attuned to what they are thinking and what they're saying. But of course, it's not going to automatically back every demand from a trade union because there are conflicting interests in, in society. That's not the role of, of a party that wants to be in government. But Owen. Can I put a devil's advocate position to you? It's easy for you and I to go, rah, 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 Labour needs to come out swinging. They should have done it much, much earlier. But a lot of people out there, particularly older voters, Labour need to win back, will go, you're politicising this uh, pandemic uh, for your own gain, political gains. Uh, you know, the government, you know, don't don't attack the pilot while the plane is crashing, that kind of thing. And even though if the public want tougher action, which the polls all show consistently they do, if Labour is always the one doing that, then Labour becomes associated with a party of misery. I mean, it's devil's advocate, but what would you say to that? Well, I don't necessarily think Labour should always have been the party of let's have a tougher lockdown. Absolutely not. I mean, I think that was a clear example where you had the union saying something, you had Sage saying something, you had parents saying something. And for some bizarre reason, Keir Starmer decided not to take that position. And that wasn't because he was refusing to play politics. I, I struggled to understand what the hell was going on in his head at that point in time. And there were real costs to that as well. I mean, kids... And went back to school for one day, potentially spreading coronavirus between them. But also, we could have had two weeks over Christmas discussing how do we get laptops to to kids? How do we how do teachers prepare um, for these weeks and months of of remote learning instead of the, the discussion we had about lateral flow tests? Because neither party leader was willing to take any leadership whatsoever. 
And there's another there's another moment I want to sort of bring up that sort of I think summarizes Keir Starmer's response to this pandemic and his failure to properly respond to it. So one is is that schools issue, which completely undermines his ability to say you don't listen to the science, you you act late because he did exactly the same thing. The other is, and it's from the same day, in fact, it was when that lockdown was announced on the 4th of January. Keir Starmer went on BBC News afterwards and Hugh Edwards asked him, is there anything from these, you know, from this announcement from Boris Johnson that's missing? And Keir Starmer said, no, no, nothing missing. Um, what's important, though, is that they get the messaging right. Now, we're nine months through a pandemic. We all know that one of the key failures of the government has been that they haven't offered proper sick pay for people who need to isolate, right? That's not going to put off people in the red wall. <laughs> you know, it's not like you, you either you either back money for people isolating or you or you win the next general election. There's not a dichotomy there. And, you know, you can say, oh, but Labour have made this announcement here, this announcement there about the need to pay people to self-isolate. Labour have actually made a bunch of decent announcements here and there. But if you're the leader of the opposition and you are someone who is holding to account a, a, a prime minister who was dealt so disastrously with this pandemic. People people think Trump's Trump's handling of the pandemic was disastrous. We've had a much higher death toll per capita than Donald Trump. And Keir Starmer is, you know, one of his few moments on BBC News where he's got, you know, the nation watching. Is there anything that you would do differently now? No, I'd just do the messaging slightly different. And there was a tweet around this time that I thought just really perfectly summed up Keir Starmer. And I just want to read it. I can't actually remember who it's by, but I tweeted it with their, their thing at the time. The pitch, so Keir Starmer's pitch, Corbyn policies, but with more professional messaging. The reality, supporting the government on policy, but demanding more professional messaging. And that's basically what we've had throughout this whole pandemic. And I don't see any conflict. I, I don't understand why he hasn't had this really consistent, what you need to do is pay people to isolate. What you need to do is make furlough a right, not a privilege, not something that you ask for and then your boss can sort of decline to give you. Proper, proper support for shielding. Boris Johnson didn't even know that right up until the 4th of January, if you were shielding or if you were in the shielding category, because obviously they ended it, and then your boss invited you or asked you, sorry, asked you to go into work, you had no rights to say no. You had no rights to say, actually furlough me because I'm, I'm shielding. And the fact Boris Johnson didn't know that in a press briefing, to me, is obviously, you know, the key failure there is of the prime minister, but it's also a failure of Keir Starmer. Because again, these aren't divisive issues. And for me, these aren't issues where people would think, oh, you're playing politics here. Actually, when I see Keir Starmer sort of debating Boris Johnson on the pandemic, I often think he is playing politics because what he's saying is you're incompetent, you're slow. I'm not slow. I'm competent. I look like a prime minister. You don't look like a prime minister. He's not actually advocating for anyone or anything. He's just marking the homework of the prime minister, which to me isn't actually a particularly responsible way at all to behave in a pandemic. The, the way you don't play politics in, in a pandemic is you work out what's right, what's going to, you know, support people through this pandemic, what's going to limit deaths, who is being ignored by the government and that you can advocate for, that you can represent. And there were, you know, so many, I think, you know, he could have selected a, a select few, so it wasn't overwhelming. But for him to not have anything on the tip of his tongue when, he'd ask, when he's asked what's missing here, I just think is unforgivable really and i think it's very very telling of how he has approached covid19 which is this is an opportunity for me to look more competent than boris johnson instead of i have an enormous responsibility right now when thousands of people are dying every day and there are a bunch of people who've been treated horrifically by this government to stand up for them 
and to try and use my role to limit the deaths in the future. And I don't think that's what he's done, quite frankly. I mean, Paul, Paul on that, I mean, got an, at the end, we've got this really interesting question from Stellos about social democracy, but I'll leave that for the end. But Paul, I mean, it's interesting because Labour have launched this national campaign on let's vaccinate Britain, which I'm a bit kind of like, a bit weird, but fine. It's like just this apolitical campaign when actually, surely it's a no-brainer to say you should have a national campaign on statutory sick pay, for example. We've got one of the lowest levels of statutory sick pay uh, in the Western world, in the OECD countries. Uh, and, and the TUC, the Trade Union Congress, point out that I think about well over 40% of workers say they can't actually afford to self-isolate. This has clearly helped spread the virus. This is a clear public health issue, statutory sick pay. Why not go on that? And the other thing, you know, test and trace again, one of the main reasons we're in this national catastrophe is they outsource test and trace to Circo and other disgraced private contractors. And actually, belatedly, of all people, Rachel Reeves, who's not known traditionally as Comrade Reeves, she actually did start talking about Circo quite a lot. But that the leadership weren't taking a, a, a lead on that. So in a way, instead of you know going down this kind of, oh, should Labour be talking about tough, miserable lockdown rules, they did have this space to talk about strategic pay, how they screwed up test and trace and how we should bring it on public control, but they didn't take it. I don't, why, yeah. why? What do you think? Well, I, I think look, the Rachel Reeves point is, I think, beside the point. Everything Rachel Reeves t- tweets is because she tweets it as part of the leadership strategy. They've clearly decided that she's the attack dog on sleaze and dodginess and in co- and sort of test and trace incompetence. Um, you've, also, you, you've, had, you've also had... Um, John Ashworth, you're pretty heavily going on that. They're they're part of a team. I think. Look, I'm not defending that their their what they their choice, but let's understand what their choice is. I don't think I don't think the Labour front bench thinks the next election will be won or lost on what happened during the COVID epidemic. Uh, I think they they think that it will. For many people, will look at it like a bad dream, and a lot of Boris Johnson's mistakes will be able to be presented as a competence issue and a seriousness issue. They're also not convinced that they'll be facing Johnson at the polls. Uh, I believe, as as a, a radical social democrat, that the point about you know being left is to say another world is possible. And I think that's what we're missing. We are missing, and some of the frustrations Michael has, I have, but the wider point is to say, you know, if I want us to go on, Universal basic income, an immediate and an, an emergency universal basic income for everybody. That would sort the furlough and the sick pay out in, in, in a second. In, it's not rocket science either. You know, even ultimately Biden, Biden will just give everybody $2,000 checks by the end of the month. I mean, it's not UBI, but it's it's a kind of it's a kind of universal and big signal thing. The reason why we're not getting there, of course, is because this of this self-denying ordinance that that Labour has got on policy full stop. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the I'd say going forward, what I would what I would urge the Labour front bench to do is to seize the high ground provided for you by science, by and the, it, these these um, struggles will not go away. There will be an accounting. There will be a public. Um, inquiry i hope uh, into what happened and during that you've got to be able to present that you had the alternative and i I share alistair campbell's frustration we need to be doing more of that but like them i i i do i think 
to be honest, our biggest problem, which I think we're going to in the time available maybe touch on, is the fact that the, the reason why 40% of people still support this utterly incompetent, you said it yourself, or in death cult of a government prepared to see tens of thousands of people die, is that they are culturally wedded to its, uh, to its project, which is the white little England nationalist xenophobia. Um, and nothing Labour does during this pandemic is likely to, to budge them. Uh, I think that's a realistic, uh, a realistic uh, kind of account. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if it is, we should be talking about what do we do about that. So we'll, we'll come on to, we're going to talk about polling and, and where comes next. Before we do, because that's a really, really important point. And also, you know, will it be Rushi Sanak at the next general election, for example? But the other thing I just wanted to touch on is this issue of the of the so-called culture war, whatever this means, because, you know, often for me, this is describing minorities fighting for their rights and dignity and and backlash against those struggles. But but if we look at the Financial Times, let's let's see what they say. I mean, they reported that Labour were looking to Joe Biden for inspiration. Makes sense. You've got someone who's sort of supposedly in the progressive coalition triumphs in an election in the United States. You want to go in on, on, on ride on that wave. Now, according to this piece, let's have a look. He, he believes Keir Starmer, apparently, according to this, he can apply the democratic strategy of winning back the Rust Belt states in the United States, socially conservative, working class voters, uh, to the so-called Red Wall here in Britain, in England and Wales, um, in the North Midlands, parts of Wales. And, and that means copying Britain's uh, Biden's emphasis sorry, on family, community and security by avoiding endless arguments about culture war, such as issues like trans rights and destruction of historic statues. Now, whatever it can be said about Biden's politics, uh, I don't have Biden's politics, so I should make that clear. And, you know, his history as well, Kamala Harris, he's now vice president, uh, condemned him when they were rivals for his association with racists in the past. Regardless, that's not the strategy that Biden pursued at all. I mean, no. you know, they, that Biden is the first, you know, in his in his in his victory speech mentioned trans people. In the moment, just summing up how ludicrous uh, parts, uh, you know, certain certain factions in British society are, because of executive orders instituted to support trans rights. It, Number one trending in the United Kingdom in Twitter was Biden erases women. Totally normal country there. But also standing on a platform of supporting racial justice, how far that will actually go. And again, Joe Biden's association with uh, criminal justice policies, which were racist in the past. But nonetheless, they have committed to those things. They didn't stop not talk about those things. They actually put them front and center. And in the first day, they'd gone bam in with them. So doesn't that show their their whole approach of la 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 on issues whether trans rights or racial justice? That wasn't the that's not the strategy of Biden at all. Who wants to go on that, Michael? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with your your analysis there. That wasn't that doesn't seem to have been the strategy Biden adopted. I think again, you can talk about this in a coalitional way. I think Biden's electoral success looked. I mean, Donald Trump was a terrible candidate, and they just had a, a pandemic. <laughs> And I say, you know, less people died per capita in America than here, but we didn't have a, you know, Boris Johnson never got up and encouraged people to inject bleach, right? That, there, there were things that Donald Trump did that that meant that whoever stood against him had a good chance, right? But uh, looking at it in terms of what positive things can you learn from, I think there was uh, something that worked quite well, which was you had this very reassuring um, figure at the center of it, Joe Biden, no one associates him with defunding the police or whatever, but he hadn't been disrespectful towards 
the dynamic left flank of his party. Um, and that meant that you actually had, you know, quite a healthy alliance going on. And I mean, I mean, I think Keir Starmer's kind of already messed that up by kicking Jeremy Corbyn out of the party. And also, I think by sometimes seeing sort of actively disrespectful um, of people in, in, in social moments. In terms of, and I mean, me and you differ on this slightly, I mean, in terms of culture wars, because I do think that in a way they they are something to be avoided to some extent. And I think there's probably a distinction that you can make between culture wars as standing up for the rights of minorities, which is absolutely something that's worth investing a lot of political capital in, and culture wars as sort of allowing Twitter discourse to leak into sort of uh, non-Twitter politics. And I do think that there can be sort of like a way of of speaking and talking on Twitter that even some, you know, AOC kind of speaks speaks with that voice um, to the American public, which is why I don't think she'd be, I don't think she could stand for president right now. And I don't think that Biden would have adopted, you know, any of her positions. But I think that idea of we don't have to respond every time people on Twitter get annoyed is exactly the right one. Um, And I actually feel that, you know, I think Labour under Jeremy Corbyn maybe did that a bit too much. I think maybe they were reading Twitter a bit too much. Keir Starmer should probably log off, well, but he should what... be talking to he should be talking to interest groups and minority groups to make sure that he is, you know, promising the things that they are demanding. Although before I bring Paul in, I do think actually there's been a bit of weird revision of, of revisionism when it comes to Corbynism. It's like this, I mean, the only people using woke in Britain now, uh, appropriating obviously language originally from African Americans in the United States, was uh, our, our reactionary uh, white commentators and politicians of a certain age let's be honest um and actually jeremy you know it wasn't like it wasn't like jeremy corbyn was waving the trans rights flag and he started his leadership at a refugee rally but after the 2016 election they weren't exactly waving the, the flag for migrants mm. rights as well it's an uncomfortable point to make but it's important but what do you think i mean in terms of the lessons from so, the united states i mean are starmer's team making the wrong taking the wrong conclusions there well, no, I think the FT are wrong. I, I, I'm not a huge fan of the FT's political coverage. That'll have been some briefing from somebody, and I'm not sure, even sure whether it was garbled or whatever. But in any case, it's wrong. The, 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 the surmise that that's what Biden did, as you said, is just wrong. I don't know. Will you allow me to? I think, can I just share my screen and show people something? Yeah, of course you can. Well, give it a go. Um, Exciting. Oh, very high tech. So this is Lord, Lord Ashcroft's poll, exit poll from um, from the American election. Mm-hmm. And the, the best bit of it, the most interesting bit, hold on a minute, can I do this? Yeah, is, is down the bottom of between between Trump supporters and, um, and uh, oh no, it's, it's not really working. Oh, let me try one more thing. It, so what it shows is the huge values divide between, between Trump supporters, uh, Trump enthusiasts and Biden enthusiasts. And if you look down the bottom of the screen here, you can see, you know, um, on and so on Antifa, they're but they're both against anti-fascists. Um, but look at the values divide divide on socialism. Uh, Trump supporters twenty six percent negative, Biden three percent positive, capitalism Trump seventeen percent positive, Biden almost you know almost like neutral. People don't like capitalism, feminism. Look at the massive difference. Now to me. I'll, put, I'll click off this now. I'll stop screen. Hold on. Yeah, so to me, that is the modern class struggle. What what people call the culture war is, is the outside work struggle against exploitation and oppression by the working class against capital. And I think that Biden's coalition that he put together, the enthusiasts, 
are a coalition of people who actually associate the struggle at work. So all organized labor support Biden. The black community is overwhelming to support Biden. Hispanics, not so much. Lesbians and gays, transgender. He went out of his way, as you said, to, to after the election and before. Now, so any idea in Labour that what Starmer should do is focus only on the so-called family, fairness, hard work and decency, which is Claire Ainsley's uh, thing. I, I support, say again? Yeah, just explain if she's head of policy. She's head of policy. I think that's what, where we should be, but we cannot give those concepts the reactionary content that people like Blue Labour want to give them. You know, when I leave during the lockdown and go to my local park, I see Somali and Caribbean and Asian families sitting in the in the um, you know in the in the park. Uh, when I walk my dog, I meet gay married people in a family. You know, I mean, the, we cannot let the right own the idea of family. Uh, number one. And the rest flows from that. So I think that it Biden can be emulated, but what he did is he constructed an, an, a social alliance of people who don't necessarily like each other, but they disliked the, you know, the kind of far right authoritarian, white racist xenophobia, and they understood the danger that it posed. And I think that's what we're going to have to do in the next election. I think we've got to be able to find roots to not just back to the Red Wall, but to places like, say, Plymouth Moorview, the north and northern constituency of Plymouth. It's the working class half of Plymouth. We lost it completely. Uh, we won back the university bit, uh, which is an achievement itself. Swindon South. Um, but I'll come, I'm going to come on to that now, actually. We'll talk about yeah. that. I mean, someone's, just, someone's asking, though, about do you think Labour needs to become more right-wing to win back the Red Wall? That wasn't actually, I don't think, the argument you're making there. This is Zuzu Zuzu. Hello. What would you say, just quickly to that, because I'm going to bring in the polling, because they right. worry to push the landscape to the right. The right. And, and Stelios Fotinopoulos said it before on, on another thing, you know. Uh, hi, Stelios, by the way. Uh, we, you know, are you calling for 90 social democracy? No, absolutely not. But um, the... What I always argued, and I've been consistent on this, this is why I thought the second referendum and the Lexit thing was pointless. You know, the, those those working class communities, what do they care, do they care about? They care about antisocial behaviour, crime, um, extreme unfairness, extreme rundownness, extreme absence of services. Um, they want Labour to represent them and support the armed forces. The hardest, the hardest places to to canvas are the help for heroes um, windows. Um, now, as a good Lenin, ex-Leninist, I start from where the masses are. What do the masses want? Well, that's what they want. And you've got lots of people on the Labour left. Say Howard Beckett, the putative leader of Unite, you know, calls me a traitor and a coward for saying that because what the what the Lexit left thought. Was that if you give them Lexit, you don't have to, to 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 make the hard yards on policing, social justice, crime, you know, defence, security. You can give them Lexit, and then you can say that maybe the Russians didn't poison Sergei Skripal. That is what blew up in our faces, and I don't need to take any responsibility for it because I fought it for two years. So, um, so no, we're not turning to the right. There's nothing right wing in a working class community about wanting the police to catch criminals. Because if they steal your stuff, or like me sitting in London, 
you know, kind of with a professional job, then you can't insure your house. That's the problem. If they steal your car, you don't get it back. And just we need to start listening to those communities. Just, just final part, because I'm, I'm worried that I'm, well, we are overrunning it. I'm also unconscious that I'm taking up so much of your time. But this has been a really fascinating discussion, which I've, I've got a lot from and I hope others watching have. Let's just talk about just like the polling, just what the polling suggests, given all the topics. So objectively, Keir Starmer did inherit very, very bad polling, really disastrous polling, uh, which came after the disastrous election result. There we go. You can see that there. That's where Labour started the year. Huge gap. The Tories ma massively ahead. Uh, and that narrowed and essentially Tories and Labour neck and neck. Although, as things stand, the Tories actually have a slight lead. That said, Labour has essentially returned to its polling deadlock with the Tories, yeah. which existed under Jeremy Corbyn between the 2017 election and the start of 2019. And you can and, and that what happened there was they remained the same all the way through 2018. They were neck and neck. And then at the start of 2019, as Brexit came through ahead, the support of both parties, Labour and the Tories, collapsed. But the Tories managed to recoup their lost support. And Labour did only marginally, but obviously uh, remain as disproportionately, but not, not Leavers. Now, Starmer's own polling, I want to credit, by the way, an account called Stats for Lefties, at Le Lefties at Follow them on Twitter and support them on Patreon. They're excellent. Uh, so he's, he started very positively, as you can see. A net rating of 2017, uh, Keir Starmer had at his height. But that support, his net rating to plus one, and actually one single poll today, another poll, uh, Keir Starmer's on a negative rating of minus one. But the other, the worst polling from, uh, um, uh, well, amongst 2019 voters, uh, Labour voters, his net rating's fallen from plus mm. 63 to plus 27. That's a really steep fall in only a few months. And the worst polling from YouGov shows that the net rating of those he thinks he looks like a prime minister in waiting has fallen from peak of plus eight in the middle of 2020 to minus 12 now. Now, this might not all be attributed to him. This is why it's important to add this point. Because a new YouGov poll shows that while 77% of under 25s think the government are handling the pandemic badly, just 16% well, amongst the over 65s, and it must be emphasised, the most badly hit by coronavirus, tens of thousands of these people, of older people, have horrendously died in this country. It's a national catastrophe. Um, and amongst the over 65s, 54% say the government are handling the pandemic well, just 42% badly. I just, I don't even know what to say to that, to be honest. There was a cemented generational divide, which is without precedent. In 1983, Thatcher won the youth vote. The, the, young, the, the age groups tended to vote quite similarly for most of British democracy. If your dad or your mum voted Labour Tory, so did you, and your granddad and your grandmother. That has broken down. You know, it, 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 when people could go to Christmas after the 2019 election, it's one of those polarised Christmases in the history of British democracy, given how people voted in completely different ways. Now, so I'd say I would look at that polling and worry because I would look at that polling. Well, I do worry, obviously. But I look at that and think that's during the worst part of the pandemic. That's when huge numbers of people are dying. That's when we're all under de facto house arrest. The economy's in turmoil. People are suffering. What happens when mass vaccination, we hope, finally rescues us from this complete nightmare that we're all uh, living through? What happens when middle-class professionals can suddenly start spending the money, which they're not, at the moment, they're saving, unlike working-class people who, of course, aren't able to do that? Boris Johnson, the one thing he's good at is sunshine and optimism. 
Isn't that the danger? If Labour's polling now is back to where it was under Corbyn, and I know it's the tr- it, this annoys everyone. There was a meme at the time. Well, under Corbyn, people always said, why isn't he 20 points ahead of a terrible Tory government? And the left keep using this about Labour now. I would say what we've shown is that there is a 40% flaw for the Conservatives, which are older white people in particular who are socially conservative, plus affluent voters in general. Um, But what, I mean, what does that tell us? Because the worry is the only way is down. It is down now. You could see from that graph, it's going down. And his ratings, personal ratings, as with Jeremy Corbyn, we saw are a drag. So I've rambled on a lot, but I just want to hear who wants to start on that because who wants to go? Michael, why don't you? I've seems like I was automatically chosen there by by the by the program. Um, what do I, I suppose the first thing to say is it, the polling is fine. <laughs> you know, I, I don't think anyone in Keir Starmer's team is going to be looking at this, and there's going to be huge alarm bells ringing. It's it's you know if if you've gone from being way behind to being level within nine months, you're not going to be you know feeling like I'm doing my job terribly. The other way of looking at it, though, is that, yeah, as you say, we are in the middle of a pandemic, which the government have sort of handled appallingly. My worry with, and again, I suppose, I think we should look at the polling in terms of how has Keir Starmer set himself up for the next four years? And what will people remember from this pandemic is is an issue, I think. And he wants people to remember from this pandemic that Boris Johnson was incompetent. But my sense is that people are very forgiving for mistakes made during an unprecedented natural disaster right so so because Keir Starmer's critique of Boris Johnson has always just been oh it was too late it was uh you know a little bit incompetent I think people think well well, you know who 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 knows what's too late in a pandemic I think he could have been in a better position and could have peeled back some of those voters who for cultural reasons or whatever are you know very sticky um, when it comes to backing the conservatives if it had been clear that in this time of need Keir Starmer stood up for us I mean, we've we've seen a bit of that with um, the universal credit now, and a bit with free school meals. I think they were both sort of examples of how the Labour leadership have have, have done things quite well, but they were almost sort of one-offs, um, almost you know granted from above. And I do think that if there was a, a response where people have had an understanding whereby the reason this pandemic is going so poorly isn't just because Boris Johnson is a bit slow and a bit over optimistic and over promises which I think people are going to be fairly forgiving of when there is no COVID-19 anymore. I mean, there'll be a bit of it around, but, you know, when there's no overwhelming pandemic anymore, they're going to forget about that. Whereas if what happened during that pandemic was the reason we couldn't get coronavirus under control was because the Tories were ideologically opposed to paying people to stay in their homes when they had COVID-19, I think people might remember that a bit more, judge them a bit more harshly, and then also think, oh, Keir Starmer, he's the guy who stood up for us. Because lots of people have the experience in in this country. Lots of self-employed people, the kind of people that Keir Starmer is going to struggle to um, to win over, um, who had the experience of, I know the right thing to do is to stay at home, um, but to stop me having a huge hit to my income, I'm going to have to go out. He, he could then have also done that this is the right thing. Another thing, this will be the final thing I say, is that, you know, I don't want to, sh- well, now, um, is... There's a thing that Keir Starmer's done, which I find is quite frustrating and why I think his polling is potentially on the decline. Although leaders of the opposition normally, you know, start quite high and go in this direction anyway. It's not exceptional. Is that He has a bit of a habit of just saying his strategy out loud. So what you've heard from, you know, what Paul's saying there, and I agree with that analysis, what they're trying to put forward this first year is their values. But we haven't actually heard the values. We've just heard Keir Starmer say values a lot. 
So, so he almost sort of he says the quiet part out loud. I'm I'm in favor of competence and values. It's all like, well, maybe show us your values. And he could have showed us his values by saying, I think my, my overwhelming priority throughout this whole pandemic is that I trust people want to do the right thing, but we need to give them the financial resources to make that happen. And I think one, there was a missed opportunity there because potentially you know, a bunch of lives could have been saved. Um, and two, I think that could have meant that people go out of this pandemic with a memory of Keir Starmer, which is more than just the kind of homework marking, I told you so, um, I would have done it sooner than you, even though I actually only called for a lockdown a day before, and I called for schools to close on the same day that you did. Paul, I mean, I know we're overrunning, and I hope that's okay. We won't, we won't be much longer, I promise, but it's so fascinating. Um, I mean, someone did ask, Peter O'Donovan asked, will Starmer be able to win because of the pandemic? I'm, I'm, I'm interested, Paul, do you think... How concerned do you think they should be uh, about about the polling and, and what do you think is driving the direction of the polling? But also that point you made before about it not being certain that Boris Johnson would lead the Conservatives into the next election. Now, I know senior Labour figures think clearly Rishi Sunak is the obvious kind of guy you'd think would replace. But that actually represents a very different proposition because apparently... He doesn't have the same culture in the red wall that Boris Johnson d- does have. There is something apparently unique in terms of Boris Johnson's... I wonder what it could be. Uh, the- well, I know, well, of course. Well, I'm going to come on to that. But yeah, and I think it's worth... Yeah, of course. Um, but the other point about... Uh, they said about Rishi Sunak is actually seats like Putney and Canterbury, which I think is hilarious because people aren't aware of Rishi Sunak's a Brexiteer and campaign to leave the European Union. But those more liberal Remainy seats would be at risk. So it'd be yeah. a different electoral coalition. So what do you think about the polling? And what do you think about, you know, do you think... if it, it labours prospects at the next election, whoever is pri- whoever is the leader of the Tories. The first thing to say is I think the Labour's prospects at the next election depend on whether we, the movement, reignite the class struggle. I mean, you know, whatever you say, all these Democrats who said, you know, BLM nearly lost us the, the election. No, I think BLM mobilised the black community to vote in, in, in unprecedented numbers, you know, in, including in Georgia, to flip Georgia. That's We need the equivalent of that. But but being Britain, it, that needs to be white white working class people in small towns. We need to find a way of mobilising them around their own interests. You know, the, the first political thing I ever did in my life at age 12 was ask my dad, what does that graffiti there say? It says Tories out. What does he mean? What does it mean? And he said, it's 1972. My dad said, it means the miners are going to bring the Tory government down and we'll join in with them. That's the politics I'm interested in. Um, so, you know, I can't get excited about, you know, I, I, in other words, I see polls and, and elections as being won by the tempo and dynamic of the class struggle, um, not by kind of clever tactics. That being said, what is missing from Starmerism, as well as what is Starmerism, is pizzazz. You know, the, Clement Attlee apparently was one of the most boring people in the world, but he had alongside him Nye Bevan, who, you know, all right, he kicked Nye Bevan out of the party and you know over the popular front in the late 30s but once Bevan, Bevan was back in there was always a clem and nigh thing and what my huge frustration about modern labor politics is is it first of all it, it squeezes dynamism and talent out of people and you get people appointed as mps who've not got much talent i think we've got a great crop of young female labor mps who i hope will end up as the leaders because they have got pizzazz and they can communicate, like AOC can communicate. But right now, not only you've got that problem, you've got the problem of this discipline. So you can't have a Nye Bevan. You can't have somebody who says, all right, well, you do the boring stuff. 
you know, Rachel Reeves, with greatest respect, I respect her a lot as a politician, is not the Nye Bevan of Labour. If there was a light Nye Bevan, they'd be stifled, they'd be kicked out. Well, fine. Dan Carden got himself sacked from the from the shadow cabinet over the spy cops bill. Fair enough. That was a principled uh, stance. That's what I would have done. Right, Dan, stand up and start leading something on the that communicates with the masses. Use the Liverpool flair that you've clearly got. And Dan actually wrote something interesting recently about how Labour is a mass force and a radical force. Let's see some of the Labour MPs stand up and start. They don't want to be challenging Starmer, saying we want to become leader, but they're saying, as an adjunct, we're the ones, like Tony Benn, who are going to go out and mobilise the masses. You know, it's hard to mobilise the masses when we're in lockdown. Lockdown won't, won't, won't last forever. It, I think once lockdown is over, a lot of political pent-up energy will come out, like it did in the summer with Black Lives Matter. And you know what? The tragedy... I went on the Black Lives Matter demo here in Vauxhall, where I live, but 30,000 people. It was the black community of South London and beyond. I've never seen something as big as that. And I've been all involved in anti-racist politics here since the 90s. Not a single Labour MP was there. Not, a, as far as I know, a single Labour councillor was there. And so next time, we've got to be there, whatever it is. And I, I think whatever it is, is going to be something bigger, actually, because people are just sick. They're poor. They are frustrated. You know, what should interest us as the left is the masses and what do they want. And um, I think we'll find out this summer, actually. So just just finally then, because uh, we need to wrap up and, and I'm sure you've got huge numbers of things that you should be doing right now. But just finally, Michael, I mean, what do you, what do you think the left strategy should be then in this coming period? It's very, it's very difficult to come up with a strategy when we don't quite know how it's going to fall with the pandemic. We don't know when lockdown will be released and all the rest of it. How we mobilise in our traditional in the traditional ways the left organising, we can't, we don't know yet. But what do you, what would you think the strategy should be? I mean, it's a difficult one. I mean, there is a big elephant in the room, which is that to have a sort of friendly alliance between Keir Starmer and, and social movements or the left wing of the Labour Party and the leadership of the Labour Party is that Keir Starmer has sort of massively disrespected <laughs> The left of the Labour Party called them racist and excluded the leader of their movement, right? Expelled the leader of their movement and sort of trashed them publicly. And I think it's going to be very difficult to heal those wounds, especially, well, unless Keir Starmer lets Jeremy Corbyn back in. So I sort of understand when people are sort of frustrated, why are Labour, why are Labour members talking about issues which the public don't care about, which is, you know, the readmittance of, of Jeremy Corbyn to the, the whip or whatever. But it, it, it is an impossible situation because I, I don't really see how you can have this friendly relationship between the Labour left and Keir Starmer when that's the status quo, when, when Jeremy Corbyn being not only you know kicked out of the party, but kicked out of the party and publicly shamed. I just think it's going to be very difficult. There was an interesting um, tweet I saw a while, it was ages ago, actually, sort of talking about the difference between Hillary Clinton's relationship with Bernie Sanders and Biden's relationship with Sanders, and not just Sanders, but especially the movement around him. And what they suggested was that why a coalition was possible between Biden and Bernie and the, their you know various supporters was because it was a policy disagreement. Biden said, I disagree with Bernie politically, but he's a good person. Bernie said, oh, I disagree with Biden politically, but he's a good person. Hillary Clinton, it was a constant, Biden, Bernie's supporters are misogynists. 
Bernie supporters are bad people. This very sort of judgmental attitude, which meant that any kind of sort of reasonable, we can agree to di- we can agree to disagree and form a popular front was impossible. And so, you know, while Keir Starmer can't undo the excluding, the expelling or whatever of, of Jeremy Corbyn, I do think that however much we talk about, oh, yeah, it's up to the left to sort of articulate a, a left program within the party, it's going to be so difficult to have a sort of functioning but diverse unity at the grassroots of the party and in the electorate as well, actually, I think, until that wrong is is righted. I mean, finally, to you, just Paul, that last kind of word from you, really. I mean, isn't that... Isn't that the big danger, really, that actually, you know, any possibility for some form of friendly alliance between the centre-left supporting Starmer and the Starmer leadership and the left has irreconcilably broken down? I mean, we don't know. I mean, you know, look, a lot of we're going off social media, it's true. The polling with the Labour membership, the last we saw, did suggest amongst some cooling amongst some of the people who from the left who support Starmer, but he still had the support, obviously, of most of the party, which you probably expect only a few months after he was elected. But what do you think? I mean, you know, a lot of the left are leaving the Labour Party. There's a significant number who are. Those who remain often just feel, you know, the guy we were campaigning to make Prime Minister just over a year ago is no longer sitting as a Labour MP. I mean, you know, and just clicking on it, you've got, you wrote an article, which everyone should read, uh, called The Left, The Party... Uh, and the class and it's it's so, check out. so maybe just you know what do you think the strategy should be and do you what would you say to those a lot of people on the left including those watching because i can see the comments just think come on starmerism they don't want the left they're not interested in the left a lot of people around them they just want the left out of the way you know and 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 we'd be mugs to go along with it what would you what would you say to that well well uh, there are people who think that i think and i understand why i think the the most the, the the worst thing that could happen is not just people ripping up their party cards, but this, you know, since the yet last year, the Socialist Party, uh, ex-militant, you know, um, have been calling for, for a kind of a new initiative whereby unions start splitting off from Labour and supporting, well, them, basically, supporting a new left part. I think that would be a disaster. It's, uh, if we had PR, I think there'd be a place for it. Uh, like, you know, in in Podemos in uh, in Spain. But I, I, if I was in Spain, I'd join Podemos. Okay, uh, but I but unfortunately, my leader Pablo Iglesias would be in the government led by somebody like Starmer. So you can't get away from social democrats and centrists. You've got to find some way of of, of having a, a respectful uh, coalition. As Michael said, knows you know, and you said I, I am in favour of something wider than that. I think we may have to go to something a proper electoral alliance of all progressive parties because of that problem of 40 percent you know un- irremo- unmovable xenophobic little england uh ism in england uh, but for the left i would say obviously don't leave don't get fooled into kind of joining something you know that the socialist party want to set up with a few uh unions uh kind of tipping them the wink that they might back it but yes there is a problem i think the the, the Labour leadership does need to start listening to the left. And I think Jeremy Corbyn should be readmitted unconditionally. I've said that from the beginning. Um, I think his comments on the day were inopportune, but they're not, they do not merit withdrawal of the whip. And I want to see Jeremy back in uh, the PLP. Bigger than that, I want to see Becky Long-Bailey, Dan Carden, uh, some of the others, back Clive Lewis in a shadow cabinet. I think this shadow cabinet is subpar. Um, 
That's one of the reasons why, you know, the, the polling isn't brilliant. Starmer is doing all the heavy lifting. Um, I think that, so yeah, I want to see the all the talents around the table. Um, and I do want to see some policies because I think at 40%, you can say, well, you've done that bit of the project, uh, comrades. You know, you've established credibility. Now we want a narrative and some policies. And um, we actually have some policies. You know, Labour is a democratic party and the policies are what's written down in the policy documents. But they need to developing. And that's the way forward to me. But I go back to it. I don't think the answer to the, the British reaction problem is it lies in Parliament, lies in the PLP, lies in Starmer. It lies in us the, the working class in all our diversity getting on the street at this earliest possible opportunity and making facts that the elite have to respond to. The moment we start doing that, we'll see what Starmerism is and we'll see what the Labour right do. We know what they historically do, run away uh, or betray uh, the struggle. And the left will be on very strong ground. The weakest ground for the left is when CLPs can't meet, everybody's stuck on Twitter going crazy, hating each other, and there is no struggle against which our ideas can be tested and developed. So that's what my hope is. Uh, th that's the way out of it that I can see. Oh, fascinating stuff, guys. That was really, 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 really good. We went through a huge amount of stuff. If you're watching, don't go yet because I'm going to let the guest go, but just give me two minutes after them. But I'm going to let you both go. That was absolutely, I'd say it was forensic. Uh, it was a forensic <laughs> analysis. <laughs> Of Starmerism, and we'll 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 keep this discussion going. And and you're right. I think the problem has been that a lot of it has taken place. This debate in the bubbling cauldron of social media, where people people are angry. They're angry for understandable reasons. We have an 80 seat Tory majority. We're living in a terrible situation, and you know politics is fraught the best of times. Uh, but this is a particularly painful period of British history to go through. So, uh, thanks so much for your insights and thoughts. Huge amount uh, for people to to feast on and process. Uh, but I will let you both go. Thank you so much for joining us. And I will, I will Cheers. see you soon. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. <laughs> 